All right. Welcome to Wednesday's edition, as always. This is Discussions of Truth. I am your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier, and I want to, you know, you need to have a good producer, right, to put off a great show, and Proctor 17, they do video work here locally to South Florida and Miami, and uh, evidently they're handy in other ways as well because... uh, I give uh, mucho kudos to uh, to Proctor Seventeen to getting this show up and running today. They produce discussions of truth. Again, I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. Uh, go to my website. It's Ian Trottier. That's I A N T R O T T I E R dot com. Check out my guest list. Um, They are impressive. Impressive. Last week, we were very fortunate to be graced by the presence on air, former managing director of Goldman Sachs. Nomi was in London the week prior to being on our program, talking about central banking, because that's what she does. And she's written a pretty incredible book, Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. She's a former Bear Stearns managing director, and she was also a senior strategist at Lehman Brothers. I quit Wall Street, Nomi says, and decided that it was time to talk more about what was going on inside it as it had changed. It had become far more sinister and far more dangerous. That is uh, not uh, to be taken lightly. Prior to Nomi, we had Ray McGovern on the program. And Ray McGovern spent 27 years in the CIA. He's quoted as saying, basically, Ian, what you're doing is essentially the last frontier because we're not looking at a military-industrial complex anymore. We are now looking at a military-industrial-congressional-media complex. He says, I'm basically the last hope. And if I'm the last hope, that means you who's listening is the last hope because you can, just like I am, give a platform for people who really know what's going on in Washington and central banks to have their voice heard because it doesn't go very far on mainstream media. So today, we're going to bring on Wolf Richter, and he's going to let us know what's going on economically and financially from his viewpoint in the United States. Stuff you're not going to get on when you turn on Fox Business. Stuff you're not going to get when you turn on CNN. Stuff you're not going to get on MSNBC. So it's up to us. It's up to every individual American who's not endorsed by super PACs, who's not bought out by big corporations, to talk about what's going on, to dig and find the truth. That means searching through people, professors, researchers, whatever it may be, at universities that know what's going on, apart from universities. But dig, 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 and dig to figure out what is going on. Because, like Noam Chomsky has recently said, Donald Trump... He's nothing more than a distraction to you. He's meant 
to divide you, to infuriate you. Okay? That is what he is. He's the apprentice. Okay? He fires people. He's making a a mockery. Not necessarily that he's making a mockery, because it's not him. It's the people that are pulling his strings, i.e. central bankers, that make all Americans and the U.S. Constitution look like buffoons. Absolute buffoons. So, next week, it'll happen to be July 4th. Happy Independence Day to the United States of America. I'm a very patriotic person. I love this country. Absolutely love this country. Got a British mother. I have no desire to be British. Okay, a Scottish grandfather. No desire to be Scottish. I was born in the United States, and I love this country. But I want to make sure that its constitution stays intact. And it's not going to stay that way unless you and I keep raising our voices. Well, if you're not, you should be. So Robert Bridge, he's an American investigative journalist living in Moscow, a native of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His book, Midnight in the American Empire, will be topic of discussion next week for July 4th, Independence Day. Apart from that, okay, call me whatever you may like. Talking Points Memo certainly had some harsh words to say about me as I interviewed Senator Chris McDaniel. Okay. I don't care. Free speech, right? What, what did they say? Words can hurt. Words, or, or excuse me. Uh, 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 what's, what's that saying? Uh, words, uh, 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 sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Okay. Yeah. You can say whatever you want. Okay. Open your mouth. Let the, let the air, you know, let, 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 that, let that flute roll. I don't care what you say. But... A guy like a Richard Gage, who's a well-respected member of the American Institute of Architects, he's got a big problem with the investigation that turned on for... I'm going to go back down this road. I'm going to go back down this road because I can. Because I can. 9-11. Okay? And he's got well over 2,000 other well-credentialed architects and engineers that also have a problem with that report. Okay? And so I'm bringing him onto this program to educate you about what he's discovered. About what may have happened alternatively 9-11. Did two airplanes fly into those buildings? Absolutely. Did 3,000 people lose their lives? Absolutely. Does it seem like Al-Qaeda engineered the most masterful attack on any country in the history of mankind? Yes. Quite possibly. That is what seems to have happened. Were there other people supporting them, financing them? Who knows? That's a good question, right? Was thermite used as demolition to bring down those towers? Did did, did, did Al-Qaeda, did, did, did they go in days before and plant bombs? You know, thermite, nuclear explosive demolition, explosive devices? I don't know. But Richard Gage who's been an architect for three decades. He seems to think so. So, you know what? I'm going to bring him on the program. And I want to hear what he has to say. Because I can. Okay? I I don't take sides. All I know is I love this country, but there's, there's things that are certainly awry. And I want to make sure people that have voices that question the government, the elected people that question them, I want to make sure they, they have that freedom to do so. La trastienda de Trump, 
There's going to be a look uh, at, uh, at Trump behind the scenes from Daniel Esterlin. And then we're going to bring in August. Well, well, midway through August, we're going to host Gretchen Peters. Okay. And she's a, another investigative reporter. Her, her book, Seeds of Terror, she's going to go into Afghanistan. Because, by the way, guys, we've been in Afghanistan for now, oh, oh, close to two decades, by the way. Right? So what's that all about? I'm going to cut to a break. I'm going to be back on program Wolf Richter of WolfStreet.com, San Francisco, California. I'm out of Miami, and the Winwood Radio, you are tuned in. Ian Trottier, I'm your host, weekly, Wednesdays, 5 o'clock, Discussions of Truth, Proctors 17. Muchos kudos to Proctors 17. They are spectacular. I will be right back, and we'll talk Wolf Street.
Can you hear me? With the Wix logo. Okay, little master of puppets. Welcome home, Sanitarium. We have online with us Wolf Richter. Wolf, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Fantastic, sir. Thank you for uh, thank you for your uh, versatility. And uh, we are a independent radio program. And uh, there's always a little bit of a few little tweaks and turns. Wolf, would you do do uh, listeners a favor and quickly introduce yourself? I told them about Wolf Street, but go ahead and please introduce yourself. Well, thanks for having me. Um, my website is wolfstreet.com. I put everything on there. Uh, it is uh, free all the time. And uh, we discuss economics, finance, uh, and business issues. And we stay out of politics. So that's what we do. Uh, my background has been in business for <laughs> for decades now. And uh, so this is my, my new gig. I have a small company, a media company that does this. Uh, that's fantastic, and I understand you um, You get about a million hits to Wolf Street each month. Is that about right? All right, yeah. And you're in a city that I, that I, that I admire personally. I like that city quite a bit. It's, uh, it's San Francisco. You're in San Francisco. I'm in San Francisco. I'm just a few blocks away from the bay, and I, just, uh, I go swimming in the bay almost every day, so I <laughs> just got back a couple hours ago. <laughs> fantastic. Do you, do you have to wear do you, do you go without, the, without a uh, wetsuit? Yeah, we go, I belong to a swim club, and we do it without a wetsuit throughout the winter, even when the temperature drops below uh, 50 degrees, and you kind of get used to that, but it, it does shake you up a little bit. Okay, so your blood your blood runs pretty quickly through your veins, I'd imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Wolf, um, okay, so take us through. What, when did you start Wolf Street, and um, what inspired you to start it? Well, originally I had a, another website called Testosterone Pit and essentially doing the same thing, but the name, you know, it was so awful in terms of uh, media center that ISPs would block it and I uh, wouldn't get any good ads on it and then that kind of thing. So I had to change the name, but uh, originally started that in 2011 and in 2014, I switched over to Wolf Street and it's been going great ever since. The reason why I started the original site is because my wife got tired of listening to me griping about the Fed and all the things that were going on, and I decided I needed to I needed to get a larger audience than that. You needed a, you needed a bigger outlet than, than just your wife. So <laughs> go ahead, gripe about the Fed. What's going on with the Fed? Oh well, um, give it you your know, best shot. You know, give it give it your left hook. Yeah, and back in 2011, you know, they were doing QE, and which was an infuriating uh, thing to do because it, they, they defined what that was supposed to do. Ben Bernanke defined it in, a, in an editorial in the Washington Post. It was supposed to create the wealth effect, quote-unquote, uh, which means that the asset holders would get wealthier. 
and they would then start spending more money, and that would help the economy. That was the theory. Uh, the result is that assets have gotten a lot more expensive, including housing. Now we have a housing crisis in San Francisco and in many other cities where uh, people who make their money out of labor can no longer afford to rent or buy uh, homes. And uh, that's, the, that's the side effect of, of uh, inflating asset prices uh, unless you inflate uh, wages along with it, you know, it doesn't work. You, you've got one class, the asset holders that uh, that got incredibly wealthy during this process, and you've got another class of people, a much larger class of people who make their money th with the sweat of their brow, you know, they're dependent on their wages, and, and uh, these asset prices move further and further out of reach. And housing is one thing, but it includes things like uh, uh, stock portfolios, bond portfolios, and, so, and you know, the retirement funds uh, now you're using uh, you know labor dollars that have been repressed for a long time to buy these inflated uh, asset prices and uh, you know that's that's the thing that the Fed has done it has shifted uh, wealth future wealth and current wealth from uh, labor to asset holders and I think this was a a, a move that will when we look back uh, years from now that will be considered horrendous and who's who's uh whose decision has that basically been to do that well the ben bernanke was uh obviously the the man in charge of the fed at the time and uh there were other people involved in it and yeah they were they voted on it and and so there's a, a number of people there uh there was probably a lot of pressure from big asset holders to do exactly that. Uh, I mean, Warren Buffett was uh, probably the single biggest beneficiary uh, in the world of, of these policies, you know, because he has a financial and insurance empire and it was collapsing and he got incredibly, uh, got an incredible deal. Yeah, he got, got bailed out. And uh, I mean, it's not like that he would have lost everything, but he might have been 20 billion poorer. And uh, you know, and instead now we have uh, uh, people who work for a living who can no longer buy the things they need to buy. And, and yeah, the top 10%, top 20%, top 30%, they have done really well in this recovery. And uh, everybody acknowledges that. That's been very good for them. Um, you know, and they, they've not only have they had jobs that, that, uh, that started paying more, but they've also uh, seen their wealth go up in terms of asset prices. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of credit being taken for that. They say, yeah, we fixed the economy, we fixed the housing market, you know, we, we got everything reflated. And, uh, and that is true for a certain part of the population, you know, and, and uh, I can definitely see that. And then, you know, I've benefited from it too. It's not like uh, there weren't people that benefited from it. But it just, uh, I, I think it, it did a really uh, uh, terrible uh, job on the structure of the economy. So, you know, there's, you mentioned a housing crisis, uh, I believe that's what you said, in San Francisco. What's, there's, there's, uh, there's a, a, a number of uh, high-rise condominiums being built in San Francisco. Is that right? That's correct. 
and San Francisco is a small place. <laughs> so hey, when you hey. look at the city, of, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can walk across it in a couple of hours in every direction. And uh, I mean, it's not a big city like Dallas or Houston or even, uh, you know, a place like Seattle. So uh, it's a the city itself is small and it has had a huge housing boom uh in and these are all multifamily. there's nothing there's no single family homes being built in san francisco forever i mean that stopped a long time ago so they're they're uh, they took a uh, what was a uh, industrial space a space essentially warehouse district uh and there's a lot more space available in San Francisco. That's, you know, we have a lot of space that's, and it has uh, nuclear contamination from the Cold War, the old Navy shipyards, for example. Huh. I mean, that's all going to get built on. But they built tower after tower after tower. And these are apartment buildings and condo buildings. And, you know, there is no housing shortage in San Francisco whatsoever. There's a shortage of affordable housing. But, uh, uh, you know, there's vacant apartments, uh uh, there, you know, condos are being offered for sale. There's tons of stuff going on in terms of availability. It's just people can't afford it. So, what's driving? What's 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 driving those kind of luxury? Is there a market for that? Because we, for the you know, the, kind of the dot com millionaires are not nearly dot com, but maybe the uh, current kind of internet uh, engineering engineer internet engineers is is that what's driving that 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 need for or. Or or or, or uh, market for uh, high end condos in San Francisco. There is a small market for it. Oh, yeah, a so small you look market. at okay, a small market. Yeah, I mean the the median condo in San the median you know is one point two million dollars, <laughs> and uh, so that's a that's like a two bedroom and may not have a garage you know and it's not anything fancy if you go to something fancy you know it, it, it goes up very quickly and you, know, you can spend 10 million dollars on a condo in san francisco without breaking a sweat <laughs> and so who who can afford a right. 1.2 million dollar condo and you have to have two very good incomes to make that work so you're uh, this is the median condo and it requires uh, a, a household income that is way, way above median. In, in, even in San Francisco, I mean, the median income in San Francisco is pretty high. It's like $90, $93,000 median household income, and uh, usually comprising of you know more than one earner. And uh, so that's yeah, that's much higher than in the nation. The average is like fifty-five thousand across the United States. But even with a much higher median household income. Uh, these people cannot afford a median condo, you know, so they can't afford hardly anything, you know, so it, it, that's what's called a housing crisis where we have teachers who no longer can afford to live in the city where they teach. And uh, sure. I mean, they're, they're, it has, you know, rent's the same thing. So if you can't afford a condo while you're trying to rent, and uh, you know, the median rents in San Francisco uh, for like a one bedroom is is close to three thousand bucks. You know, so it it uh, <laughs> you know you're 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 spending you know seventy percent or so of your teacher's salary just just on an apartment. So in Miami, there's an incredible boom in construction here. I've noticed this uh, just within the past two, and there's there's like there's these luxury condos. I don't know if there's any uh, you know parallel to uh, kind of what you're experiencing in, um, in in San Francisco. I don't know if there's uh, you know that kind of boom uh, for for luxury condos in other cities. I I believe I've heard some of it's going on in Los Angeles. Uh, frankly, I don't know what's driving that growth locally in Miami. Yeah. Uh, well, that, go ahead. 
You're correct. I mean, Miami uh, has a, an enormous condo boom, condo and apartment boom. The biggest one in the country is in Seattle. Seattle. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's where, that's the epicenter of overbuilding right now. And I'm just, I just got some data in and I'm going to look at it and write about it here in the next day or two. And, uh, and I've been doing that in the past. I mean, that Seattle is a much bigger market than San Francisco. And, the you know, in, the, in Miami, it's along the, the waterfront that you have, the construction boom of high rises. And, and Seattle is just all over the place. And uh, crane counting has become a passion, and uh, and and uh, vacancy rates in apartments are now huge in these high-rise towers in in downtown Seattle. It's twenty-five percent vacancy rate. Uh, I mean, they're wow. they're facing some major problems there. And you know, the, your question was, where does this come from? And you know, this is the uh, this is what you get into when you have extraordinarily low interest rates when money is really cheap okay. and uh and the the costs sort of disappear and distort uh decision making and you know everybody's building high end because that's how you as a developer that's how you hope to make money because yeah. you can get you have bigger profit margins you know and you can get more money for these units if if there's a market for them and there was a big market I mean, there was a su sufficient market for it for some of it, and uh, and now you, know, you have investors playing. And in Miami Beach, you know, this is and uh, in, in Miami in general, uh, this is a a very interesting phenomenon that's going on in other cities too. But down there in particular, because you have so much uh, uh, foreign money coming in there, uh, people buy investors buy these condos in the pre-construction phase, and uh, and they flip them. They try to flip them. Uh -huh. as either uh, during the construction process or when they're completed. And, you know, you can't get a mortgage on an unfinished uh, condo, so uh, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll get, they have lenders that work with them. It's a whole industry that grew up uh, around that. And, uh, and so you have a lot of this flipping going on. And when these investors, are there, they're no longer developer-owned, they're now investor-owned, even though the developer is still building the building. And... Uh, and it's a way of funding uh, the development, and uh, and that you know has run into trouble too because now uh, there's fear of those flippers jumping in the market. Those that have jumped in have trouble selling the units. There are a lot of uh, uh, towers that that are, uh, are mostly vacant, and in terms of people living there, uh, so this is a. Uh, this is a situation where we don't really know what's going on until until it falls apart and suddenly uh, the bank starts foreclosing on these condos and it turns out nobody wants to buy them, nobody's living in them, and uh, you know there's really not a whole lot they can do with them. And, and yeah, this is a particular issue in Miami, and it's funding some of those so those uh, construction surges, uh, but I I don't <laughs> I can't. Yeah, even in Miami, I, I can't see how this will go on forever. Yeah, I, I, can't, I, I can't see it. I can't see it either. Um, Wolf, let's go back to the, to, to, to the Federal Reserve, and it seems like that may have been kind of what, what, what initially got you, revved your engines to start Wolf Street. Um, what, do, do, I don't know, are you familiar with Nomi Prince by chance? 
Yeah, somewhat. Okay, so yeah, she was on my she was on the program last week, and she spoke about uh, your, your former Goldman Sachs managing uh, director, and and she spoke about the, the, the central banks. Why, in your opinion, you, in your opinion, Wolf, you seem to be pretty bright, you, uh, up to date with economics and that sort of thing. You kind of understand on a, on a national scale, at least. Haven't talked to you about international scale. In your opinion, what is is the, should the Federal Reserve be? For instance, it's it's private, right? It's totally private. They close their doors, and should it be more public? What do you feel? Well, the Federal Reserve is a hybrid institution. So a big part is private, as you said. So all the Federal Reserve banks, there are 12 of them, they're, they're private institutions. So the New York Fed, the San Francisco Fed, and those institutions are private, privately owned banks. They're owned by the biggest financial institutions in the districts. And, uh, and and those institutions vote for the management. Yeah, so they they're completely private institutions. The Federal Reserve also has the Board of Governors, and uh, the Board of Governors, the, the the head of that is Jerome Powell, and these are all federal employees. They're appointed. Uh, Jerome Powell was appointed by the president and and affirmed by by the Senate, and so they're uh, they're. Uh, yeah, they're, they're the federal entity uh, of the Federal Reserve, and it's a it's a small group of people, but they're you know they're employees of the of the federal government, and they're appointed by the president, uh, and so it's a hybrid situation. And when it comes to voting, uh, all the the governors on the board of governors vote, and then uh, on a rotating basis, the heads of the uh, privately owned regional Federal Reserve banks vote. So there, there's a majority of uh, federal employees that, that decide uh, the interest rate decisions and there's a minority of uh, um, privately, of the heads of these privately run uh, Federal Reserve banks. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I'm really leery about, uh, you know, these kinds of uh, central banks that are uh, too close to the government. And for example, in Argentina, the central bank is essentially a department of, uh, uh, of the Ministry of Finance. And it was nationalized back in the 1930s, I think. And it, it, uh, uh, it, yeah, its main function <laughs> is to fund uh, government spending, essentially. And in the process, they have completely destroyed the peso. Wow. And the peso used to be worth a dollar in 2001, and it's now worth three or four cents. Oh, boy. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah, the dollar has lost about 95% of its value, too, but that happened uh, you know, since uh, the Fed it came into existence since 19, uh, 1913. So it's been, a, it's been 105 years, you know, and Argentina accomplished the same thing in just a few years. Uh, you know, the, the, the peso is down like about 30% just this year. And so they have a free fall going on. They have a collapsing currency, and they continue to fund government government operations by essentially just printing money. And uh, they're, they've now been locked out of essentially borrowing 
uh, in hard currency. They can't borrow it in pesos long term because nobody wants to buy that crap and, and be exposed to inflation is 25 plus percent. Um, so this is what a, a central bank can do to the currency if it is part of the government. And um, uh, and that's what I'm leery about. You know, I don't want the central bank to do uh, the bidding of Congress. You know, if, if, he, if, if politicians that just, you know, they're they're really interested in buying votes. And so if you get the free money from the biggest money printer out there, then why not? You know, it's going to look good for a little while. Um, at the same time, long term, it's a disastrous thing. Um, you know, we, we all have fiat currencies now in, in the entire world. So they have to be managed very carefully and they're very easy to destroy. They're based on trust. If you destroy that trust, it's gone forever. And uh, if you, if you, and that's the trust of their own people. So if, if Americans lose trust in the dollar, the dollar, you can kiss the dollar goodbye, you know. I mean, and the world, the, the global community also needs to trust the dollar. You know, you look at the yen, the Japanese yen, the Japanese love the currency. They trust it totally. And uh, despite what the government is doing, the enormous amount that it's borrowing, uh, and despite the fact that the Central Bank of Japan is uh, is monetizing a big part of that debt now, uh, the Japanese people and the world community, they trust the yen, and so it has held up extremely well, despite uh, all these things, you know, and uh, when a country like Argentina can't can build that trust in its currency, it goes to heck, you know, and that's that's the big fear I have, and the and the Fed needs to, you know, we we have the Fed, we live with it, and it doesn't matter how I uh, uh, wail and gnash my teeth about it, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it was that's that's the reality, and uh, and I think the Fed needs to manage the dollar so that it it uh, won't suffer the fate of the. Argentine peso. And it maintains consumer confidence. Wolf, it, 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 it seems like you, you might be German, and, and maybe you want to uh, say a few things about Deutsche Bank. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and, and first things first, you know, there is no way there, there is no way that Deutsche Bank will be allowed to collapse in a disorderly fashion. And a lot of people are saying that that may happen, but uh, the government of Germany is just not going to let that happen. And they didn't in the past, and they won't be won't in the future. Yeah, the, during the financial crisis, they bailed out the second largest bank of Germany, Commerzbank, and, and they supported Deutsche Bank. And uh, they will continue to do that. I mean, the Deutsche Bank is way so heavily in the German economy, in the real economy, yeah, and the in the industrial economy of Germany, it is so important that uh, there can be uh, no disorderly collapse of that bank. So that won't happen. At the same time, uh, the, that bank has had. Uh, yeah, it, it used to be just a fairly conservative, big industrial bank in Germany. It had a big retail branch uh, organization, you know, and, and it was conservatively run. And then somewhere along the line, uh, the Wall Street uh, virus got into it, and they decided we are going to become a big global bank and get into derivatives and all these other sexy things. And uh, and now, you know, the bank has had nothing but trouble for for years and it's been losing money three years in a row I mean it's full exposure to derivatives and other things not even known uh, yeah so uh, and yeah look at it 
it's uh, it shares and its bonds, especially the the cocoa bonds, the um, uh, they were set up as as capital and and they're designed to be bailed in when the when the bank gets in trouble and those things have been going down again so investors are losing confidence in the bank and uh, and so when when Deutsche Bank gets in trouble my prediction is that shareholders uh, will take a big hit and these cocoa bond holders will take a big hit that's planned you know they they will take that before shareholders will and then. Uh, that that may be all of the damage investors will have to take, and then the the German government will step in and and <laughs> more or less uh, in an orderly fashion take care of the rest. I mean, there's a consensus in Germany that Deutsche Bank is way too big to fail uh, for the German economy. Not, I mean, it's not a Wall Street thing. It's a it's an industrial economy thing, and uh, you know all the major uh, industrial companies in Germany do business with Deutsche Bank, and so it it's just it's it's a utility for the German for Germany. Again, you know, it's like electricity; it has to be there. You can't turn it off, and uh, and so. I, you know, and, and that will probably be uh, beneficial for the world economy too, because if you allowed a huge bank like Deutsche Bank with so much international business uh, and so interwoven into uh, other banks to blow up in a disorderly fashion, you know, you would have another mega financial crisis on your hands. And so, um, it's okay if the German taxpayer, I'm not one of them, you know, if, if they get to bail out Deutsche Bank. I've had my share of bailouts here in the United <laughs> States, so I've paid for my share. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about a little bit of a bailout, like the like the biggest bailout that maybe Americans should be concerned about. Should there be concern should there be concern about the rapidly growing amount of debt that uh, that this country has? Yeah, and uh, you know, there there's two things. Uh, one, the United States, by definition, cannot go bankrupt. So that fear is off the table because you know we can print our money, and and so if we can't, if we can't legitimately pay back that debt, we'll just print some money, and 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 that's yeah. The the it's not the government that's doing it; it's the Federal Reserve that would be doing it, right. and uh, the Federal Reserve is the lender of last resort to the government. So it can't it can't hand the government the money but you know SQE has shown it can be there as a buyer uh, for that debt and it will always be there so there there is no way that the United States can go bankrupt uh, like Argentina defaulted on it didn't default on its peso bonds it defaulted on its foreign currency bonds and uh, the United States doesn't have any foreign currency bonds you know even Argentina made good on its peso bonds you know because they just collapsed in value <laughs> but what happens in the United States in a, uh, if a problem occurs is that instead of a debt crisis, a Greek had a, Greece had a debt crisis. You know, right. uh, Argentina had a debt crisis because they don't control their own currency. But instead of a debt crisis, we may have a currency crisis. And uh, uh, that will be that will be the risk of this debt that the world and Americans lose confidence in the in the dollar, and uh, that we get too much inflation, and uh, you know we get people trying to get out of dollar denominated investments, and uh, we get all kinds of issues surrounding that, and that will be the the hallmark of a currency crisis. Uh, currency crises are in, in many ways more democratic. A debt crisis, what Argentina went through and what Greece went through, uh, the government no longer has the money to spend money. And so what you will see is that 
the poorest people will get hit the hardest. You know, the people on in the United States would be people on welfare, it would be pensioners, it would be uh, it would be uh, disability recipients. You know, uh, the government would not be able to pay them anymore, and and the wealthy people would be okay. You know, they they've got the money elsewhere and they'd be fine. And that's what happened in Greece. Uh, this is not happening in the United States. So if we have a currency crisis, it will impact everybody and anybody that owns dollar-denominated assets and particularly financial assets so it's in that sense it's a lot more democratic it will also impact labor because uh generally wages don't rise quite as fast as you as the currency the value of the currency collapses during a currency crisis so i mean it will spread around it's miserable and it's painful but uh, even warren buffett won't be able to escape it and so that and that's the good thing because uh, now you have the asset holders are really worried about that kind of crisis. Now, they, they wouldn't be worried about a debt crisis. They're worried about a currency crisis currency. because, yeah, the dollar-denominated assets would collapse and in value, in purchasing power, you know. And so, I mean, uh, if you have a bond portfolio that's worth a billion dollars, it will still be worth a billion dollars, but it can buy only half as much at the end of it. And uh, uh, so that is a real fear. And so there, there's a lot of big money behind the Fed now to not allow that to happen. So I'm, I'm fairly confident uh, that uh, yeah, there is a, uh, a strong impetus Am I saying something wrong? The police coming after me. <laughs> and I, I think there's a strong impetus out there uh, among the power brokers and and the big capital uh, that uh, that steers away from a currency crisis. And you know the Fed has been tightening, and I think that's part of it. Um, and the the Fed won't back off. And they're 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 a machine now, and they're going gradually, quote unquote, as they always say. But uh, they, they, yeah, this rate hike cycle has been going on for two and a half years. It's very slow. Prior rate hike, hike cycles were over in two years. You know, so we're just kind of started in two and a half. So this may go on for four or five years. And you know, they're unwinding key and they're doing everything uh, they can think of without completely blowing up the markets that would, uh, you know, would reinsert some confidence in the in, into the dollar. You know, and that's been happening. The dollar's been rising and. Uh, you know that a currency crisis will just wipe everybody out and everybody with assets. You know, so I think uh, uh, a, a Fed that is independent uh, from politics will will try to avoid that. Now, what's happening in Houston? Is it Carmageddon? What, what's going on in the car the car space there? Yeah, Houston. You know, your listener might not know, but I used to live in Texas and I used to live in Oklahoma, and I got. I went to college in Texas, and I got my MBA in Austin. And so, uh, you know, as they say, my heart is in Texas to some extent. And so this is close to me. And uh, Houston has gotten hit uh, really bad by the oil bust. Uh-huh. And, uh, and yeah, the other, the oil bust hit okay. the oil field workers, and it hit the professionals, the office workers. And the office workers are in Houston. And... Uh, uh, and what happened in car sales is that they essentially collapsed in Houston, in the Houston metro area. And, uh, yeah, going down between 20 and 30 percent on a year over year basis. Now, that is huge. That is financial crisis type uh, 
uh, collapses. Now, the, normally when we talk about a, a decline in sales year over year, it's 2% or 3% or 8%. 8% is bad, 10% is terrible. In Houston, it was 20 to 30% month after month compared to the prior year. And it was just, I mean, it was just terrible. And, uh, and that started in, in late 2015, and it really got going in 2016 and, and towards the end of it in 2017. And then in the spring of 2017, May, you know, the oil was going up in price, and it sort of flattened out, and it stopped dropping. And car sales started to just tick up a little bit, and then there was hope that finally in the auto business, and yeah, you know, I used to run a big Ford dealership for ten years in my prior life, and and so I I know what this is like. And I was in the I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma at that time, which went through its own oil bust in the 1980s, and never really recovered from it. And uh, we lost back in the day, you know, we lost 15 percent of our jobs, and people left because they couldn't find jobs. Young people left. The restaurants closed. It was just terrible. Houston is much more diversified. Than so it didn't really hit Houston that hard, but it hit pretty hard. And uh, so when it when oil prices came back up, there's hope that, okay, so car sales would start ticking up again, and they did. And then uh, Hurricane Harvey hit, uh, and, and that hit in August. And for you know a week or so, all car dealers in the area were shut down completely. And then some car dealers started opening up again, and others, it took longer. And then there was hope, instantly, almost instantly propagated in Wall Street, that the destruction from Harvey would create an enormous, uh, quote-unquote, replacement demand. And there were some figures thrown around of 600,000 vehicles and those kinds of things. And my own estimates back then were probably less than 300,000 uh, and it turns out that was even too high. And the, the replacement demand was there. It, there was uptick in sales in September, October, November, and December. And then it kind of petered out. And the, it a little bit went into January. And now it's completely gone. And we're back to the same old sales uh, during the oil bust. And uh, uh, this is really a, a very uh, disconcerting development. Uh, you know, they're... Uh, after Harvey, you know, the, the oil prices are now in, in the 70s, or close to 70 WTI. And, uh, uh, yeah, there should have been an increase in, in that part of the economy. And, uh, you know, Houston itself is not doing too badly. Uh, employment is up. Uh, yeah, the retail overall is, is up a little bit. Uh, the office construction sector... Uh, has plunged and you know there's uh, there's vacancy rates in the office sector in Houston are in the 20% range you know they're, they're the worst in the nation and they won't recover for years so they stopped building office buildings and so uh, all of those people uh, <laughs> eventually uh, got you know lost their jobs but then Harvey hit and so now they're in the res residential construction they're rebuilding homes and so uh, so that sort of balanced out you know so the building permits are down just a little bit with with uh, uh, you know, commercial construction plunging by like thirty uh, percent, and residential construction surging, and and so the difference is just a slight downtick. So the overall economy in Houston is not doing that badly right now, but the car sales are just—I mean, it's just terrible. And used car sales were down ten percent year over year too. You know, so um, and 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 there's some some theories why that is happening. In part, uh, people think that. 
yeah, this whole business of uh, fixing flood-damaged cars uh, and returning them to service, uh, <laughs> it, yeah, that, that's a big thing. And, and so there's an industry that's set up around this, and there are auctions and all kinds of things. A lot of it is legitimate. I mean, you have a car that that would normally cost 15000 that you can buy for 5000 and it has a flood title on it. But if it runs okay, you know, why not? Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so these sales are taking away sales from uh, from that replacement demand. Uh, so it's uh, I mean it, it, we'll have to see how that works out. But if 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 that's a short term thing, you know, it, it'll blow over. But if if this is a larger problem, you know, then uh, then I would be really worried. Yeah, well, maybe Tesla car sales are up. <laughs> now, Houston, uh, all of Texas, uh, they're really not into cars. You know, it's uh, SUVs, it's pickups, it's compact SUVs. Okay. Uh, I mean, seventy percent of the vehicles sold in the Houston area were what we consider trucks. So that's pickup trucks, SUVs, compact SUVs, and vans, and only thirty percent were cars. And uh, so Tesla's going to have a hard time. I mean, that, yeah, sure, there's some people that love Teslas and they'll buy them and they're anywhere. But in terms of a mass market demand, you know, it's probably not, not in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Wolf, I want you to run a little bit for listeners through your outlook of Trump economics. And then lastly, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to address uh, the article, an article, recent article I think you've, you've put up on Wolf Street, how people turn into debt slaves. You can take both those subjects, you can categorize them separately and hit one and then the other. That'd be awesome. Okay, so in terms of the economy, uh, there's the good, there's the bad, and there's the ugly. <laughs> and uh, and in, 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 in the spectrum of the Trump policies that we have right now, every area is fully represented. And uh, I, I am... Yeah. Uh, I have written about uh, the trade deficit of the United States years ago, you know, and people didn't pay attention, they didn't care. Uh, economists and in the media, they have said that offshoring is a good thing, it makes America stronger. They've said that uh, rising imports means the economy is strong in the United States, so we should encourage this. And, you know, my articles were just poo-pooed. And... Uh, uh, and so along comes Trump, and he essentially agrees with me. And, and he says, okay, this is a big problem. We run these huge trade deficits. We've been offshoring production. We've been laying off manufacturing workers, and we've been giving them jobs at a, at a McDonald's. And, and that's not really working out very well for our, our economy, and that's really true. So I'm really glad he is bringing up the trade deficit, and it needs to be brought up. It is uh, uh, Corporate America is the biggest culprit in this. It's not other countries. You know, it's co corporate America. Yeah. Nobody forced them to offshore production. That was done yeah. out of uh, their own decision. So I don't want to, to blame China or Germany, and there's plenty of blame to go around. I mean, the, yeah. there's an unequal playing field. Yeah, there are tariffs. In China, there are tariffs in Germany. Yeah, there there's industrial policy in Germany that that uh, keeps imports out. There are all kinds of issues in China where reciprocity would really go a long way, but th that's not happening. Yeah, you know, China is stealing our inter intellectual property. I mean, there if you want to manufacture cars in China, you have to set up a joint venture with a Chinese company and, and give them your technology. I mean, there's all these things going on, but uh, in terms of the imports, and we don't really a lot of cars from China. We there's two models we import the the Buick Envision and the Volvo. Uh, 
yeah, but we import a lot of components in the auto industry, for example. And and these components, uh, the, the American component industry shifted after the financial crisis, it shifted from the U.S. to Mexico and to China. And this was corporate America that is responsible for that shift. It's yeah. nothing to do with Mexico or China. These were this was GM and Ford and uh and other companies uh, took their component branches over to China and to Mexico because there's cheap labor and it, it made sense for them. And so this caused a surge uh, of imports and, uh, uh, and it caused a trade deficit to just balloon. And I'm really glad Trump is putting that on the front burner. Now, I'm not always really excited about how he's going about doing that. But the fact that he did that, I think, is really good. And other presidents have tried a little bit, but they really pussyfooted around the issue. They didn't want to make the Chinese mad, and they didn't want to make the Japanese mad, and they didn't want to make the Germans mad, and they really, really, really didn't want to make corporate America mad. And so they really never got anything done in that respect, and they just let it go. And uh, so now we have uh, a president... Who doesn't uh, care about making anybody mad? And he's out there with his sledgehammer, and uh, and it's causing all kinds of anxieties. And I think a lot of that is is good. Uh, I hope this gets resolved properly. You know, this can really right. right. This can really get out of hand, and it can really go into a trade war. It can go. I mean, this can really get very very bad. And uh, so I hope that. Uh, uh, you know, rational minds are used to think this through and come up with solutions that work, yes. and uh, uh, that is really key. And and uh, if 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 that works, you know, then then Trump will get all the credit from me for 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 doing that, even if it costs all kinds of. Uh, uh, anxieties all around the globe. Yeah, you know? uh, this is something our trade deficit needs to be addressed. But it, you know, it needs to be addressed in a way that it doesn't ruin the economy for everybody. Yeah. So uh, we need to be really careful with that. Uh, so that, and so in terms of the economy right now, it's really strong. You know, the the, the money is still cheap, and and uh, uh, there is a surge. The surge in asset prices is is working its way into other parts of the economy, and uh, you know we've there's it's uh, retail sales are are strong. Um, it uh, consumer. And that's going to lead to the next discussion. Consumer borrowing has boomed, you know, right. so a lot of consumers are, are more conscious and they're borrowing more money to, to spend. And uh, so retail sales are very strong. Inflation is up and that's worrisome. So uh, consumer price index is uh, rising at uh, close to 3% now and uh, uh, and going and ticking higher. So it'll probably go over 3% uh, pretty soon. And uh, uh and that's that's disconcerting because it it hits the purchasing power of consumers. So in the long term, that's going to be a real problem. But right now, consumers are not feeling that they still have access to their credit, and they're they're going pretty strong. Um, in terms of, um, so I don't see a recession or anything like that this year. Okay. I mean, maybe next year, maybe year after next. But uh, right now, uh, this year looks very solid. Um, I mean, there would have to be some kind of major sudden event that would cause a recession. Now, right now, I mean, the second quarter looks good. The first quarter was good. Uh, yeah, so it, you know, I, I don't see any major hiccup this year. Um, 
at the same time, you know, consumer borrowing uh, has surged, and there's now over a trillion dollars in auto loans out there. There's uh, over a trillion dollars in credit card loans out there. Uh, there's well over a trillion dollars in student loans out there. Um, I think consumer debt will hit four trillion dollars combined. That's not not counting mortgage debt. So just just the non-housing debt will hit four trillion dollars here in a couple of months, and um, that's a lot of money. And that is expensive debt, especially uh, credit card debt is very expensive yeah. debt. And uh, when you look at these uh, numbers a little bit, one way to look at the debt burden is to compare it to uh, disposable income. So this is uh, income minus taxes. And uh, so what's left over after taxes. Yeah. And that ratio of uh, uh, required debt payments, so interest and principal payments uh, compared to disposable income, that ratio is closely watched. And before the financial crisis, it was uh, in the 90s, it was uh, in the teens. And then it ticked up to 20%. And then during the financial crisis, uh, I mean, a household income actually, disposable income plunged during the financial crisis. So it actually, that, that caused some problems. Uh, but also consumers defaulted on their debts, on their credit cards, uh, on their car loans. And so they, they whittled down that debt that way. Not really that they paid it off, but they just got, you know, they defaulted on and got rid of it that way. And... Uh, uh, and now we're, you know, we're we're at 27% roughly, and 26%, uh, uh, and uh, the highest ever. And so that number, that yeah, 27% spread over all consumers. But you got to remember, there's about a third or more of the consumers who essentially don't have debt. They're, they're, they got their mortgages paid off, and they don't have credit, debt on their credit cards. They pay them off every month, and uh, they don't owe anything on student loans, and they pay cash for their cars. Yeah. And then we have a midsection of consumers that have moderate amounts of debt, and that's just fine. And then we have the most vulnerable consumers uh, that make the least amount of money, and they have the most amount of debt, and it's all that expensive consumer debt. And that consumer debt is concentrated in that area of the most vulnerable. So that $4 trillion that is owed in non-housing debt is concentrated among the most vulnerable consumers. And, and those are the debt slaves. Those are the people that work very hard to pay the debts. They work very hard to, to just pay interest on their credit cards. Yeah, yeah, when you got a credit card debt of $10,000 and you're paying 25% interest, you know, that's $2,500. Yeah, and in credit card, that can be more. It can be over 30%, yeah. So suddenly you're talking about paying several thousand dollars of interest on food and clothing that you bought maybe years ago. And, and that, you know, they're gone, and what's left over is that debt. And, uh, and they because of that interest payment, they have trouble uh, making ends meet, so they borrow more. And, uh, and so the debt increases and and you get into the cycle and then in the end they say, well, I can't do this anymore. And so now we have seen uh, the default rates surge already. And as I said, you know, the economy is very strong right now, but credit card default rates have exploded to financial crisis levels, but only at the smaller banks. 
the largest banks they've been cherry picking the customers you know and and they they're trying to get the good customers with lots of money and good incomes and they offer them 50,000 frequent flyer miles for signing up and they give them all the great benefits you know and low interest rates and these are customers that don't really need the credit cards to begin with and so they may never have a debt on that but they you know you you use it to purchase stuff and every time you purchase something with a credit card uh the bank gets a cut of the fees you know and so you may never have to borrow on the credit card for the bank to make money the bank makes money over the transaction fees and so they love that and then the smaller banks that can't offer those kind of uh, <clears throat> uh benefits they went after what was left, which is a lot of subprime-ready customers and other vulnerable customers that are over-indebted, and, uh, yeah, and they lent money to them or gave them credit cards with big, big uh, uh, credit limits. And now we have seen the default rate surge uh, in that category uh, to 8 9%. Uh, which is huge, you know, and uh, and now the, the economy is good. People are have jobs, you know. I mean, this uh, there's some debate as to how good it is because our you know employment numbers are are probably not the best way to to uh, depict the labor market. But uh, yeah, we've used the same employment numbers for for all these years, and we've we've added a couple million jobs a year, and and people aren't getting laid off right now. You know, they they have jobs. They have jobs. And they default on the credit cards. That's what's happening right now. The the most vulnerable, and that is a real problem because at some point we're going to get a recession and people will lose their jobs. Yeah. And what you know, and and then it's the the default rates by then will already be high. Right. And. And suddenly, people lose right. their jobs, and and then it, you know, during the financial crisis, people just started defaulting on the loans after they were were losing their jobs, and you know, almost 10 million, 10 million people lost their jobs. I mean, that was terrible, and uh, uh, so uh, right now, the the economy is good, and the credit card default rates are shooting up. So this is really not a good situation, and it shows that the debt's life. So the most vulnerable consumers are getting in trouble, and. Uh, uh, that they can no longer uh, uh, play this game, you know, that, that the interest rates uh, on these credit cards are too high, <clears throat> banks got too greedy, instead of charging 8%, you know, they're charging 28%, and uh, in consumers, there's no way they can pay this off. You know, there's peer-to-peer -peer lenders that are in that market, uh, they, they do personal loans, you know, they have big default rates uh, on, on this basis, and uh, uh, so the most vulnerable consumers i think are in trouble most of the debt slaves and uh i i don't i'm worried about them you know this is um we have a strong economy and that part of the population is not doing well and that's that's really tough that's a little bit scary so wolf what what uh admonishment might you have for listeners what what can uh what can the average American out there that's uh, working hard and, and, and doing doing their best? How can they protect themselves? What 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 kind of uh, last words uh, parting shot do you have uh, for <laughs> listeners? Yeah, I mean the the biggest protection is I think is to make sure your life is in order. So uh, you do a job well, you take care of your family, you take care of your loved ones. Uh, I think that is crucial. You get through any kind of crisis if you got that part together. If you got your family and your friends together, you know, so that is really crucial. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, and and you know, for young people, it's I'm, I'm a big proponent of learning. If it doesn't have to be formal education, it can be a trade, it can be anything, but. Uh, 
you know, once you learn something like that, it doesn't really matter what happens to the economy. If you have a, a trade that is in demand or if a expertise that is in demand, you'll be okay. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, financial risk, I think uh, we are surrounded by landmines. And uh, it is, uh, I think it is very difficult these days to give financial advice uh, because everything you tell people to buy is incredibly risky these days. And, uh, and I don't give financial advice, so I really don't, don't get into that. Uh, but yeah, there, uh, there are now, uh, thanks to the Fed's raising interest rates, yeah, there, there are short-term government bonds and savings accounts and CDs out there that uh, return over 2%. It's still below the rate of inflation, but at least you won't lose your money. Yeah, these, these are secure investments. Uh, I think uh, yeah, precious metals are always an option. I'm not a real fan right now of precious metals because the cycles are so long. And, uh, and uh, you, you know, I got caught with silver in 1982, and uh, yeah, it took 20 years to work out. And and so the the down cycles are very long, and the up cycles are very long too. And I'm not sure we're we're deep enough into the down cycle to uh, to make precious metals a, a good buy. Um, but you know, if you own the physical, then it's good to have and and enjoy having it, and and don't worry about it, and uh, it's going to be there, you know, and and, and just hang on to it. Um, but the yeah, the big thing right now, I think, for people with uh, uh, with some wealth is capital preservation. You know, capital preservation is very hard to do when the boom stops, because things fall apart left and right. You know, where do you put your money? Yeah. And I think capital preservation is an art that many people that made lots of money have not learned and they will lose lots of money. And uh, uh, so I think the next few years will will, uh, will be about capital preservation. Wow. Amazing, Wolf. Uh, Wolf, do you have any final words for listeners? Anything, anything out there that's kind of lingering? Anything else that uh, listeners, you'd like listeners to, to know? Well, um, enjoy the economy uh, while it's good. <laughs> it won't last forever, you know. I mean, uh, uh, make hay while the sun shines. And uh, right now, you know, despite a lot of the negatives out there right now, the economy is pretty strong. So, um, uh, you know, don't think capital preservation and, and um, you know, and the economy is good. So, Well said. Wolf Richter, ladies and gentlemen, wolfstreet.com. Wolf, thanks for being you. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, incredible. Wow. Incredibly said. Now, this this uh, this guy knows exactly what he's talking about. He knows the economy well. Okay? He's uh, he's, he's very well versed in what's happening. Uh, again, I'll repeat it because it's noteworthy. WolfStreet.com gets about a million hits a month. And I don't know what kind of staff he's got, but whatever he's doing educates and informs. And hey, kind of like you said, consumer confidence. And so certainly you get consumer confidence going You've got a good source to be confident about, and that would be Wolf Richter. I will be right back 
to close out this program. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. You've tuned in to Discussions of Truth on Winwood Radio.
That guitar is amazing. I think that's Kurt Hammond. I'm not sure. <laughs> Woo, that's wild. Wild, wild, wild. Metallica, amazing. Uh, Wolf Richter. Oh, my gosh. Like, what incredible fortune discussions of truth. Formerly, by the way, I started this almost two years ago. Formerly, by the way, the Florida Sun and Spray Show. If you don't know that history, it's the Zika virus that came ashore in Miami Beach and Wynwood, where I broadcast out of, and the pesticide that was sprayed for that virus called Nailid. It just so happens that Nailid was engineered in the 1950s by Chevron Chemical Corporation in a town called Walnut Creek, California, uh, with just uh, basically a few miles away from San Francisco. And Nailid, if you don't, or excuse me, Zika, if you haven't heard about it, it certainly comes from the Uganda forest of Africa. But what kind of piqued my interest in this? And by the way, somebody asked me to, 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 to come on to this. Uh, I was invited to start this. Uh, yeah, that's really how that started. Uh, I wasn't looking to start a radio program. But it, what piqued my interest was the Zika virus. The scientists that were funded to study that were Rockefeller Foundation funded. And the company that engineered the pesticide, uh, Nailid, uh, also known as Dibron, that's the, another trade name, they have maybe four trade names, was a Chevron Chemical Corporation. The largest shareholders of Chevron Chemical Corporation would be the Rockefeller Foundation as well. So when Standard Oil was split up under the antitrust, those seven companies that it split up into, the Rockefellers retained majority ownership of all seven companies. I leave that with you. Next week, next week, we bring on Robert Bridge. It'll be 4th of July. He's a former editor in chief of Moscow News, the Moscow News. And he's going to discuss his current book, Midnight in the American Empire. Corporate America is no longer content doing what it does best. Yeah, Wolf was just talking about us about the greedy corporate American companies, right? Yeah, go to the go to the lowest go to the lowest manufacturing price point. Where is it? Mexico? No longer Mexico. We go to China. So, corporate America is no longer content making or doing what it does best, which is making money. These business behemoths are aggressively attempting to control the entire economy, cultural, and political realm of American life. Debt slaves comes to my mind. Debt slaves. Wolf just said it. Don't be a debt slave. They have nearly succeeded, Robert continues. Most Americans would agree that corporate power should be prohibited from disrupting the natural rhythm of our democratic institutions. Yet we the people are thwarted from addressing the subject of corporate power. Not because we do not wish to have the conversation, but because we have nobody to address the issue. Our political representatives, hostages as they are to corporate campaign donations and government lobbyists, cannot seriously debate the question of corporate power indeed. Their very careers depend on corporate power. Meanwhile, the media, the so-called fourth estate, Robert says, refuses to discuss the issue of excessive corporate power because the media itself is a corporation. 
At the same time, the consequences of excessive corporate power are becoming acutely obvious inside of the corporate universe. Today, fewer U.S. workers are spending more time on the job to produce a greater amount of products while not receiving fair recompense. That's slave. Meanwhile, wages for American workers adjusted for inflation have remained stagnant for the past 30 years, while U.S. vacation time in the United States is the lowest of all the industry's industrial economies. The blatant lack of representation in the workplace is directly responsible for these shameful statistics. Just 7% of the American workforce today enjoys union representation, a percentage that pales in comparison with past generations. There's also the question of corporations disrupting the fabric of cultural life. Indeed, today, Main Street, USA, is largely unrecognizable. This can be witnessed in everything from preponderance of fast food restaurants and hyper stores, I'm assuming Walmarts, to corporate America's aggressive monopoly on all forms of entertainment. So, there we have it. Fine, I'm going to continue. Entertainment, which is on a downward spiral, the total degeneracy. <laughs> wow. Wake up, America. Yes, your entertainment is degenerate. I totally agree. Well, most of it. Since corporate-owned cultural revenues, i.e. television, film, books, have more influence over our children than do educational institutions, Robert continues, it should come as no surprise that violence and unsocial behavior is on the rise. And I don't have seen recent statistics, but it's hard to argue with that. History has always proven that no nation can survive for long once its moral fabric has been shredded. Finally, the symptoms of extreme levels of corporate power in our lives are becoming increasingly conspicuous in a variety of ways. From the rise of a destructive... I'm not reading the whole book, by the way. I'm just reading a Google review. From the rise of destructive behavior at home to the sadistic treatment prisoners of war, i.e. John Kiriakou, right? In four lands, Guantanamo Bay, to the reckless disregard for... He's been a sh- uh, guest on my show two times, by the way. You go, go into my archive, iantrache.com. I, I urge you to do that, please. For the collapse of the natural environment, something has gone awry in the heart of America, Robert says. I call it corporate zombieism. The nature of the problem suggests that the American psyche is being guided and influenced by... The less than respectable influences, since it is corporate America that is largely responsible for the degraded mental and physical content that are now feeding the people. The institution must accept a large part of the blame for America's fall from grace. The time has come to tame this beast of burden. The time has come to remove corporate power from the halls of power. It is time for the American people like their proud and independent ancestors who founded this country many years ago to regain control of their country once again. Happy 4th of July. Robert Bridge, he'll be on this program next week, July 4th, to celebrate Uncle Sam and your relationship with him. Because do not forget, you are the government. Ian Trottier. Dot com. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Facebook. Have a great day. You've tuned into Winwood Radio. This is Discussions of Truth coming your way every Wednesday at 5 o'clock. Be awesome.
reliable and affordable cloud business communications and collaboration solution. You get high-definition voice, video and audio conferencing, 